Habits are who we are, and we get to choose every day who that is. What's remarkable about these women is that their habits are changing the world. Hi, and welcome to Habits, the good, the bad, and the holy. I'm Molly, and I'm sitting down every week with adorers of the Blood of Christ Religious Sisters to hear their stories and learn how habits have become more than a symbol for their vocation. They've become the means to which they change lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Habits, the good, the bad, and the holy. We are kicking off this podcast with an incredible interview with Vicki Burkamp, who is our fearless leader. Vicki, thanks for sitting down with me. It's very nice to join you all. Uh, can you explain what your title is and why I call you our fearless leader? Uh, the title is called the Regional Leader of the United States Region. Mm-hmm. And that means that um, all the sisters in the United States, plus the sisters that are in areas that we sponsor. For example, we have a mission in Bolivia and we have a mission in Korea and we're starting one in Vietnam. So any of those sisters belong to the group that is called the U.S. Region. So I coordinate or lead or whatever needs to be done for that group of women. They're all your minions. No, none of them are my minions. Yeah, because y'all have a very collaborative way that you elect leadership. So um, every six years, a new leadership team is elected. But I think elected is, it is the right word, but it's not the connotation that we use today. Can you explain just kind of... Uh, briefly, what why that process is different than what we would see in like a U.S. election? Um, I think that leader, and not just my position, but the four counselors that are also elected at the same time, we use the word election, but it really is more of a concept of being chosen by the group for a period of leadership time. Right. So, it, it we talk a lot about what is going to happen in the next six years, what are the skills of the people that are available and willing, and then we try to match that together, and we say to each other, okay, I think you are the person who can help us during this period of time. So you really come together and look at what's best for the individuals and the community. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, Vicki, who are the Adorers of the Blood of Christ. The Adorers of the Blood of Christ are a group of an international community of women who um, were started by a woman named Maria de Matias in the 1800s in Italy. And um, the, the charism, which we use that word to talk about our character. Right. It's almost like um, a company would have a mission or a right. vision statement. Charism is... Sisters speak, which I use a lot throughout uh, the next episodes y'all will hear, um, as a, a bit of a translation for the the non-sisters. Yes. So the charism is something we always identify and go back to. And so the charism of this community is about uh, reconciliation and taking care of the... Our, our, Maria de Matias used the phrase dear neighbor, which was a... a, a term that many people in the 1800s who started religious communities, that phrase was used. And it it gets at that idea that you can't do something important if you are ignoring the person next to you. So the charism is really finding the, the ministries, finding the places we want to be where we can serve the neighbor as well as, quote, do something. Right. Um, so this podcast is a new venture for the ASCs. Can you talk about how it came to be? 
Well, we hired this communications director <laughs> who is significantly younger than any of us are. Only by a couple of years. Mostly by decades. You know, decades <laughs> company of decades. Yeah. Um, we, we've been aware for a long time that social media is a very important uh, communication device. And, and you, as communication director, have helped us focus in on this. Mm-hmm. And it's your creativity that has brought this about. Hey, everyone. Molly here. I just wanted to step in for a second. Vicki misspoke just a second ago when she called me the communications director, and I do want to clear that up. Sure, what an hour is the communications director. I am the communications associate, um, and together we form the communications team. And now back to the interview. I Yes, I'm very excited. And this is going to be every week. We're sitting down and talking with different ASCs, which is the abbreviation for Adorers of the Blood of Christ. And hearing y'all's stories, um, the ministries you've done, the missions you've done, but also your lives as humans <laughs> alongside your lives as sisters. Um I would like to tell the story about yes. why we're called ASCs. Yes, t- yes, please. If you called us by our English name, Adorers of the Blood of Christ, we would be the ABC sisters. Right. We don't really want to be the ABC sisters. Right. So we use the Latin, which is an Adorus Sanguine Christi, and also because we're an international community. So yes. the ASC, it makes sense when you understand that piece of information. We're going to do some Q&As at the end, but I'm going to run through really quickly some questions I get super mm-hmm. often as a baseline for I, probably every person that's not a sister listening to this. So the biggest difference between um, a full-fledged sister and uh, the other parts of our ASC family is this idea of vows. Um, can you talk about what vows the ASC take and what those vows kind of look like in just an everyday life. All right. Uh, all religious communities following canon law in the church mm-hmm. have the three vows of um, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so... Um, and for all of you people that just like winced, just like <laughs> keep, just hold on a second. Just listen in because it's an... It doesn't look the way I thought it looked, and I'm excited to really? share. Yeah, because I didn't grow up around sisters. I grew mm-hmm. up Catholic, but I didn't interact with sisters, and so I started working here. And so I've really enjoyed learning what those vows and the charism look like in daily life, and it's very different than what I envisioned in my head. Okay, I hope I answered this right. I'm sure you will. <laughs> Chastity um, used to uh, – actually, I think it – in in some old arguments would have been called virginity. So uh, chastity is the idea that we make a vow not to, um, basically not to get married, mm-hmm. that we live a celibate life. Now, um, all of us live the, live the virtue of chastity. We all make full lifetime commitments and mm-hmm. we live within that. So that's what we've done is made that commitment that my life energy is going to go to the mission and the charism of this community, not into a personal relationship uh, like marriage would be. All right. Poverty is um, is is maybe a mis- misnomer, but I would agree with that. After <laughs> I've learned, we share our goods in common. So mm-hmm. my salary, I don't see my salary. My salary comes to the community, mm-hmm. and then the and then our documents say that the community will take care of my needs. So you know the the the. The struggle with poverty is that I don't always get what I want when I want it. And and our our documents say we're all going to be treated the same. So yeah. it makes no difference how much money you make, whether you make $10 a week or $500 a week. Your lifestyles are going to look the same. And you all are also given budgets. 
Right. We, in, in order to make that work as an organization, right. we have we have to be able to say, I'm going to need this or I want. Mm-hmm. We, we talk a lot about the difference between our wants and our needs. Mm-hmm. And um, and and it's important for us to be able to name our needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also important for us to sit, be able to say, I'd like this, but I don't really need it. Mm-hmm. So that we can keep a balance, not just in the short term, but in the long term. Yeah. So we have a lot of sisters that are retired right now. And it may not seem like we should worry about them, but we have it is important for us right now to save money to make sure we right. can take care of everybody. I often have said that um, the the biggest advantage of this lifestyle mm-hmm. with the vow of poverty yeah. is the timing issue. If if my if my um, if I had trouble with my teeth right now, I could go to a dentist and get it taken care of. People I've worked for might have to wait till next year. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's. That that's the upside of it. Yeah. It's it's like because it's in common, the more immediate needs get taken care of immediately, and often other people have to wait for those needs to be met. Yeah. So you have been a regional leader for how many months? About seven or eight. Seven or eight months. <laughs> uh, and how did you come to be the regional leader? Well, our we have an election process that started way back last spring when. Uh, the first step was that we talked to each other about who might be good at this job at mm-hmm. this time in our life. And um, I was pretty sure it wasn't going to be me. I even told people not to worry about putting my name in because it wasn't going to work. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, that that process is amazing. I mean, the spirits at work, we're, we're yeah. all praying, we're all talking to each other. And things change over time. And then we, when we we had we had a little retreat for everybody that had been named as possible people. Yeah. And some of the some people said, you know, I'm I'm I just can't do it right now. It's not yeah. my time. It's not good for me. So some people dropped out. And then we went to the assembly in June. With and what's this, the assembly? The assembly is an annual gathering of all the sisters that are able to come together. Right. And so we came to that assembly with this group of names. And again, we had process. We There were questions to us. There were, there were uh, discussions and tables like, what do we think about these people? What do we know about them? And um, then it just starts emerging. And you can sort of see where it's going to go. And eventually, mm-hmm. we do an actual ballot. And, and you have to have two-thirds... Uh, on the first two ballots, I think, and then after that, it's fifty percent. So it took us a couple days to get mm-hmm. through the five positions that are elected. Yes. Um, so you know, it's a it's it's a wonderful process to be part of in the sense that it's amazing to watch it. It's also a difficult process if your thoughts about yourself and what you want to do, and the community's thoughts about you and what you want to do are too different. Yeah. And so some people. It, it's it's easy to get hurt in that because these are all our friends and right. comrades, but um, somehow we always manage to work through it and uh, yeah. work it out. And that idea of individual and community uh, thoughts that may differ leads us to the third vow. Oh yeah, we forgot that. One. Yeah, I left it out. <laughs> We're back to it. Um, obedience is um, traditionally in the in the very. Uh, Far distant past. Obedience was often, um, I tell you what you're going to do and you go do it because you're the person that's obedient. Obedience today is about these uh, being 
willing to enter into these processes Mm -hmm. of how we're going to make decisions. And so whether it's internationally at our general level or locally at this regional level or even more locally in our houses, um, it's a matter what we commit ourselves to is being part of the process of the decisions that need to be made. And this was, for me, the word I bristled with the most, obedience. And it's Uh also the one I was the most wrong about. Um, And I've... uh, we are recording this interview a little backwards. I've already uh, sat down with 23 other sisters, so I've heard a lot of stories. Um, and when they talk about the vows of obedience, they're talking about, I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to start a new career. I wanted to take some time off to care for you know, an aging uh, or sick family member. And those conversations where obedience, and I'm using air quotes, came into being were taking those really heavy decisions and going to your counselor or the leadership team at the time and saying, this is kind of where my head's at. What do you think? What is, how is this going to impact the community and collaboratively choosing something that's best? Right. Which I don't think we would call obedience in today's world. So I was really wrong about it. Yeah, I you know, I think um I think if you think about the story you just told, um that movement of saying, here's something I really want to do mm-hmm. and going to somebody and, and letting that person interact with you about whether it's good for the whole group if I get to go do this, that's harder than it sounds. Yeah. I just um emailed one of our sisters in Liechtenstein. And invited her to come over. Uh, next year is the 150th anniversary of the arrival of our community in the United States. Yeah. From Steinerberg, Switzerland. And so I invited her um, with, to come over and join us for that as a representative. And when she responded to me, she was just thrilled. She'd, she, yeah. she'd been on our general counsel. She'd been here many times. Yeah. And she had given up on the idea that she'd ever be able to come back. Mm. But her next line was, I will have to go talk to Sister Judith, who's her regional, Yeah. about whether that's possible. And, you know, my mind can go to, what do you mean whether it's possible? Of course we can make this right, work. Right, we can make it work. But, you know, that community, she has important work there. Yeah. And that community has to decide whether that makes sense for her to be gone for that period of time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know that sound, it sounds better than being told what to do. Yeah. But, you know, when you're told what to do, then you can gripe at the person that told you to do it. Yeah. When you decide together, yes, you can't. Right. Yeah. And you have to you have to maintain a different level of openness. And when you say, I really would like to do this, and they look at you and say, you know, that isn't going to work right now. Mm-hmm. That Finding the grace to accept that gracefully mm. and be able to live in a positive way yeah. and not get your feelings hurt, that, that, that's a... It's not a momentary process. It's no. a long process, yeah. but it's a very healthy one. Yeah, I agree with that. I think people in any sort of relationship could probably learn from that. Exactly. You know, regardless of what vows you've taken, exactly. I think that's probably a process we could benefit well, and, from. Well, and all of us do that in our mm-hmm. relationships. Uh, married people have to do that. Yes. And parents and children have to do that. Mm-hmm. It's not a new process. It's just... Yeah. And parents who... You can look at that concept of obedience with parents and children, and we know that children will obey 
in certain ways at right. certain times. You have to know each other. Yeah. Uh, knowing each other is uh, something you all do very well. You have known the women in this community for as long as you've been a sister. Um, the question I probably get asked most is how do how does a woman live with only other women and not kill each other? <laughs> well, you learn over time that if it you know again if think of it the same thing. How does a family? Live yeah. together without killing each other. Um, you you learn to balance each other's needs, and mm-hmm. you learn what which part of your needs are most important, right? And what you're willing to, you know, what are the wars and what are the battles, right? And there are plenty of battles, um, and people have lots of stories about the battles, yeah. um, and but they're part of your growth and part yeah. of learning who you are and who the other person is. Mm-hmm. And I think an, another Im- important part of this is. Um, in many ways in community, what you are agreeing to do by choosing to live in community, which is a choice we make by joining the community, right. the congregation, is that we commit to each other to create a safe place for each other. Mm-hmm. And there are times when, you know, you're not at your best. And sometimes those times go on for a long period of time and you need a safe place. Yeah. And so that's what you create for each other. And sometimes you are living with someone who's in that bad place and you have to decide is that person really that bad or is that person just need some space right. and we can support them through this? Kind of create that space for them. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the the misconception that comes with this idea of like all these women are living together. Um, you all don't actually live in like bunk bed style dorms together. No, no, this no. is not the sound of music. No. Yeah. Uh, can you explain what living in community looks like in a modern world? Uh, in, in the modern world, uh, we really do try to, um, evaluate the amount of space that's comfortable for people to live well together. Mm-hmm. So everybody um, has a private bedroom. Uh, we, we try to find facilities if we're in a new spot and we need that has some um, is built in such a way that there, you know, there, there might be a den here and a, a living room over here. So some people can watch TV and other people can listen to music. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I, I would say we try to avoid spaces where the kitchen, living room, dining room thing, it's all one big room. So you need, you, you find some, you find those ways of creating space for each other. And, um, you all live in just kind of normal houses. It's right. just like having roommates. Right. Yeah. Right. We do live in, but more now than we ever have. We live, uh, yeah. because, um, traditionally we often were connected to like hospitals or schools mm-hmm. that may have a quote convent there. Right. Living quarters. Right. But now they, those, those don't exist for mm-hmm. the most part. And so we live in, we do rent or buy regular houses. Yeah. Um, you have a unique living situation though, which is unique to your position. You live alone. I chose to live alone at least this year, this first year or so, um, for a couple reasons. One is I'm I'm a very strong introvert, mm-hmm. and so this job is an extrovert job. Yeah. So I knew that the um, living alone part would give me the time I needed to catch my breath and be ready for the next day. Um, I'm from the Wichita area. We're living in St. Louis, so many of the communities that are here are very well established and again it was not uh, choosing not to put my energy into Mm -hmm. creating community until I figure out what this job is really about and the third reason was most of the sisters in St. Louis live to the south and east Mm -hmm. and I chose to go to the west so that when I have a chance to get back to Wichita I don't have to drive through St. Louis to do that. Smart. 
Yes. You also have a job where um, being the the leader, um, I call you a lot of different <laughs> leadership terms in my head that are probably not your actual title. Um, you know these women at a, a deeply personal level because all decisions – big life-changing decisions come through the leadership teams so they mm-hmm. come through you. Um, I can imagine that would make living with someone, especially if you were making a decision in their life, kind of difficult. Yeah, it is. Um, I think people uh, over the years have done that and have had to do that. And, um, you know, it. but it's one of those life things. It's like yeah. a lot of people have to do that in their families, too. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's like it's not that different than what families have to do. Yeah. You know? And I think you're you're touching on uh, one of the hugest is huge story <laughs> reasons I was so obsessed. I think it's the proper word uh, for starting this podcast, because um, when I started working here, I had all these ideas about how different sisters were going to be, that you all were just these very quiet, contemplative, Mm. like spend all your time in prayer Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, women. (laughs) And you're just not, you're loud and rambunctious and stubborn and funny. And you've got this huge number of experiences. You're just humans with a job that we don't fully as a society understand. Um, And I've loved learning about it. Uh But what's cool is that the more you learn about it, the more you realize, oh, it's it's just like any other job you take. Mm -hmm. We just have this kind of... Yes, there's a Weird. mysterious. Yeah, there's, there's some something mystique. mysterious and almost uh, kind of a romantic mystery yeah. about religious life that people like uh, the most. I, uh, if I can tell a story. Yeah. Um, many years ago, um, when sister, when Mother Teresa died, mm-hmm. um, I went to a the day or two afterwards. I went to a dinner, and everyone was talking about Mother Teresa and how much impact she had on the world and how wonderful it was and what's going to happen then now that she's died, et cetera. And I was sitting there being very quiet. I had just come from doing a um, um, consultation with the religious community mm-hmm. who was struggling to maintain all their ministries and, right. and the number, et cetera. So someone asked me uh, why I wasn't saying anything. Did I not believe that Mother Teresa had made a huge impact on the world? And I said, oh, yes, I, of course I do. I said, I'm trying to sort through the idea that part of her mystique was that she served the poorest of the poor and that she wore the dress of India, which was the sari. Mm-hmm. I said, I just come from this place and uh, a sister runs a homeless shelter uh, in this little city. It's a broken down hotel and she runs this place for the homeless and she was wearing jeans and a sweatshirt and tennis shoes. So she was wearing the dress of the people she was serving, mm-hmm. and she was serving people no one else in that area would serve. Right. And I said, so these two women had a lot in common. Yeah. And yet most people would follow Mother Teresa, but would not follow the sister who was running the homeless shelter. Mm. And I said, I struggle with that as as a member of a religious community that there are some things people really like and some things people don't even notice. Yeah. You touched on two just perfect segues. <laughs> the first being the namesake of this podcast, Habits, which um, 
I really enjoy a good pun, um, which is part of why it's called Habits. But for a, a lot of people who don't know anything about religious life, the traditional vestment you see a nun wearing, especially mm-hmm. in movies, is called a habit. Right. Uh, but y'all don't wear them. No, we don't. Um, I have historically, um, Maria de Matias really was not inclined to dress differently than the people she served. Right. And her writings uh, talk about that. Mm-hmm. As as we as her organ her group of women became connected to the church, the church was very adamant at that time in the eighteen hundreds that the sisters had to dress in a habit, uh, in other words, appear differently than, right. than them. But Maria really fought that and uh, she wanted us to dress like the people we served. Right. Um so, you know, I, I know that's controversial, and I I don't know that there's a right answer to that. But for our community, there's a right answer, because yeah. she was very clear about that. Yeah. I had a personal experience. Uh, I was teaching. So after Vatican II, as we went back to our own documents. And let's, for the non-Catholics, what is Vatican II? <laughs> Vatican II was a meeting of the uh, bishops of the world in the uh, early 1960s, and they wrote a number of documents. And one of the themes was religious life, and we were called in religious life to go back to the documents of our founders Mm -hmm. to to reignite those charisms, because I suppose at that time there was um, a tendency to lump us all together. Sisters were sisters. It didn't make any difference. Whereas the communities are very different. Each of you have a different heartbeat. Yeah. So after that, we were doing all this work, and I had reached a point. I was um, still wearing the veil, and I was uh, teaching 7th and 8th grade at at a school. And I had this little gaggle of girls that used to hang around with me after in recess and after school, etc. So I had reached a point where I was taking my veil off on weekends. And, you know, I was always wore it to school and church, but I wasn't wearing it anyplace else. So over Christmas, I thought, it's time to just drop it. Right. So I went to school after Christmas, and I was prepared for all the questions these girls were going to ask. And they didn't say anything to me all day about it. I thought, okay, I don't know what that means. So after school, when when I left the classroom, I walked out to go home, and there they were all standing outside waiting for me. And I thought, okay, here it comes. And I said, what's up? And they said, well, you need to... to um, settle this dispute we'd been having all days we all day we do not know whether you cut your hair got new glasses or i forget what their other option was they had no idea that i didn't have a veil on so that taught me that the the habit that symbol Mm -hmm. is more for people uh, that do not know you right the people that know you know you're a religious and they They know what you're about, mm-hmm. and we we use this symbol of our heart and cross on our chain. That that's the symbol of our community. Right. The other story I have about that is uh, I was working in Washington D.C. and I went home at lunch one day, and the place I lived was a, had a little bridge to it, and there was a man standing right in front of it, and I didn't. I thought, well, I'll go get the mail rather than I wasn't sure. I didn't know him. He wasn't from yeah. our, from our neighborhood, and. Um, so I went and got the mail. He continued to kind of stand there. And I think at some point he realized that I probably was a little trying to figure out. So he started to walk towards me and he said, uh, you're a sister of the precious blood, aren't you? Yeah. And I, I looked at him like, how could he possibly know that? Well, he had noticed 
from a distance, my heart and chain. And the heart and chain, it's a necklace that all the ASCs wear that has a heart and cross at the bottom. Yeah. He had noticed that, and he had lived in a... Um, a children's home mm. that the sisters ran up in Pennsylvania. And he talked about how important that was, how much care they had given him and what a good start they had given him in life. Aww. So you just never know. Yeah. The impact, the impact and how it touches people and how they're going to remember it, etc. Yeah. Uh, so you just said the precious blood, which is an odd phrase. Uh, can you explain what that means? Uh, we were, uh, we were literally, originally called the adores of the precious blood mm-hmm. now we're talking about the adores of the blood of christ the um and there are a number of communities that have this precious blood charism or symbolism and really it comes from um it comes from that idea of our life force that mm-hmm. blood is the life force and even though you know it has all the gory connotations and like ooh, i don't want to look at this um the power of that that image of the blood and what gives us life yeah. is a very powerful charism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just touched on, A, the biggest reaction I ever get when I tell people where I work. I usually say I work for an order of nuns. And if I have someone with me who knows your name, they go, oh, tell them the name, tell them the name. Because uh, they really want just to watch the reactions. Um, but it is, it's a very... It's this idea that we are all connected uh-huh. through, you know, the same blood, essentially. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a turn of the phrase, you know, we all bleed the same. Yes. Um, so that's, again, back to our dear neighbor. Yes. Um, but you you mentioned something, I don't know, a couple minutes ago, uh, about ministries. You were consulting with an order about ministries. We, as the adorers, have mm. sponsored ministries that are... Oh, so just one of my favorite things to talk about. Can you talk about what our sponsored ministries are? Of course. Sponsor, our sponsored ministries, we have a, a, a college in a, a university in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, we have three care homes for the elderly yep. in uh, Mulvane, Kansas, David City, Nebraska, and uh, Columbia, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. We have um, a homeless prevention program called Center of Hope. That's in Wichita. That's in Wichita. We have a an organization in Wichita uh, called the Women's Initiative Network, which is for victims of domestic abuse. And the program is really designed to give women who have experienced that um, skills and um, um, disciplines that bring their self-confidence back. Because mm-hmm. very often that situation leaves them with no self good self-image. Yeah. Um, I'm probably forgetting some. I'm trying to think. I think I think that's all. I think so. And these sponsored ministries are a huge part of a lot of the stories we'll hear uh, this season. Um, and I'm sure, you know, uh, seasons onward. But specifically, this upcoming season is all sisters from Wichita. They live in mm. the Wichita Center. Um, so Win Center of Hope, the university you mentioned, Newman University, um, those are all in Wichita. Uh, so mm. we get some, there's some good stories that come out of all of those. Right. And, of course, Wichita is where you came from. Exactly. Um, and you worked at Newman University for I a did. very long time. I did. You were a professor. What did you teach? I I was a professor of business administration, so I taught courses like business ethics and finance and uh, management and organizational behavior, et cetera. You mean you you don't... You, like, have jobs. You guys don't just sit oh, yes. at home and pray. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, there, there, 
there are two general types of religious communities. One are called contemplative, and their role is to be in prayer most of the Which, day. Which, by the way, these are most commonly portrayed in horror films. Yes, and monasteries. <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they don't get out enough. That's no, their they problem. don't get out enough. Um, but uh, our community is considered apostolic. Okay. So the idea of an apostolic community, it, again, this is how you organize yourself. So you you organize yourself so that people are free to work in yeah. various ministries and serve people. Yes. And apostolic, actually, the, the word apostolic comes from the root apostle, uh-huh. which were Jesus's followers, those who went into the community, taught his way and did his works. Exactly. So it is it is truly following the footsteps of the apostles, right. Right, which is where apostolic comes from. Exactly. Very good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> got a Catholic gold star today. Um, do you want to do a little Q&A? Oh, of course. Why not? So I went on Instagram. And first of all, if you don't follow us on social media in the show notes, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We put up YouTube videos and you can subscribe to Habits. Lots of things you can do in the show notes. And I had uh, some lay people, which is sister speak for not a nun um, or a priest. If you're a male. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had them submit questions that they wanted to know about nun life. Okay. Don't worry. They're I'll all, do my, I'll they're do very, my best. They're very uh, chill questions. <laughs> all questions I had also when I started. Okay. The first question, did, do women actually dream of being a nun growing up? Well, I don't know whether you're... You dream about it. I suppose you imagine it. Maybe that's the same thing as dreaming. I, think, I don't think so. I mean, dreaming is something I would say comes from your subconscious. I think uh, the woman who asked the question, I think she's saying, like, you know, when you're little, and you're like, oh, what do you want to be when you're uh, a fairy princess? Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it, it back away is what, like when the sound of music was out in the 60s. You know, the, I'm sure little girls dressed up with bales on their heads because it was an easy thing to right. do. Yeah. Um, and actually, this question gets answered in a couple of episodes. Um, a lot of the interviews speak to how sisters, you know, found their way to the community. And for some of them, it was very young that yeah. they knew that they were going to be sisters. None of them have talked about dreaming about it, though. All of them have talked about an instinctual. They just knew. Yeah. And that I find more common than, like, yeah, dreaming so. about yeah. it, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so this question... Is gonna. It's a personal question because I don't think you can speak for everyone. Um, but I'm sure uh, you all get this question a lot. I know you do because we talked about it at lunch yesterday. Uh, why did you become a nun? And then, do you have any regrets? Hmm. Um. I it, I have always said that it's as hard for me to describe why I became a nun as it would be for someone to describe why they married a certain person. Mm-hmm. It's um, there, there's enough mystery to it. I mean, you can, you can make all the pros and cons you want, right. but e- eventually it just comes you down just to, yeah, you, you just choose it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have often said my vocation was born on a tractor. <laughs> I grew up on a small farm and there was a lot of field work to do during the summer. And uh, so I had, and I liked being outside. And so I, I loved to go out in the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had a lot of hours and hours and hours on my, on uh, to myself out on the tractor in the middle. And podcast didn't exist. So the what summer. did you do? Yeah, so you just kind of watch nature and watch what you tried to watch what you were doing and think about your life. And so I've often said I think that having that time probably embedded the idea in me more than it would have 
um, if I hadn't had that time. Yeah. We talked for a second about it, but what is the process to become specifically an ASC? So I was, um, I was taught by one group of sisters in grade school. Mm -hmm. And in high school, I was, went to a girl's high school that was, had two sisters, groups of sisters there. So when I decided I was serious about this, then you contact the quote, the vocation director, uh, which we will link our vocations in the show notes. If anyone's interested. Yes. And, um, you make the contact and say, I'm interested. They do some, some discussion. Um, there's some testing like uh, psychological testing, right? Like personality tests. Right. Is this going to work for yeah, you? Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and then you just make the arrangements and show up. Yes. Um, and then you go through a year of... We have a, the first year, I forget what it's called. Oh, candidates. Yeah. They call them candidates now. We call them postulants when I was young. And uh, it's it's really a year where you live with the community and just try to get a, a real sense of, yeah, I could do this or no, this is not for me. Not right. And then you go into a year in Novitiate, which is the most formal year of training. Yes. And it's very intense. And during that year, you really don't do much of anything else. And when I went through Novitiate, you were pretty well cut off from everybody for the yeah. most part. Um, and then that after that year, you make first vows. Right. And you make those for very short periods of time. And there's a period of called temporary profession where you're in short-term vows until you decide, yes, this is it. I'm yeah. going to make a final commitment. Um, so it takes about five years. Uh, candidacy, you're still living in, I call it the real world. Like you haven't really fully changed your right. life. When you're a novice, you live at the novitiate, um, right. which for us is in Belleville, Illinois. Um, you live at the novitiate. You spend your time almost exclusively around sisters. You're doing a lot of discerning, which is sister speak for thinking, praying, deciding, mm -hmm. learning. Um, you learn about the community. You learn about what this looks like in your daily life. Um, and then you take temporary vows. And then when you're temporary professed, you you go, you work right, or go to school go or to whatever school. your yeah. next step is. So exactly. um, I affectionately call them baby nuns, but we do have some <laughs> um, candidates, novices and temporary professed. And I'm looking at a picture of them and I'm just going to give some examples of what they're doing. Uh, one of them is, is living at the novitiate and uh, learning English and studying. She's from Bolivia. One of them is in Bolivia, but she is American. In Guatemala. Oh, in Guatemala. Uh, <laughs> and then one of them is at the novitiate living in Belleville. But then we also have uh, candidates, novices, and temporary professed across the globe. Uh -huh. um, and some of our temporary professed, um, one of them's in college becoming a nurse. One of them's in college doing music therapy. therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So your life does not end becoming a sister. Mm -hmm. It begins. That's true. Very profound. <laughs> the next question, do women ever leave the community? Yes. Uh, I, I I started with a group of 13 people, mm -hmm. and I'm the only one left. Yeah. So I knew 12 that very well. I know I know a number of others that have left. And some of it, so, most of it is just when there's they reach a point where they realize that their, their life and the, where the community is, is not working. And it, yeah. it just doesn't make sense to stay together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But they don't get shunned. It's not like a... No, no, no. There's no hatred involved. No, like, no, no. It's just a collaborative process the same way everything is. Right. We we stay in touch with them. We're, yeah. I'm still friends with a number of them. Yeah. Um, and then the other part of that is, can you come back? I have known people that, that have done that. I've known several people that have done that. I know people that have come back after a very short period of time. I know a woman who came back after 20 years. Yeah. Um, she was, it was, it was an interesting story because she left the community and she was an associate. This yes. is not our community. It was another community. And, uh, she was an associate and the, and she retired from her full-time ministry. She was in her sixties and the community finally said to her, you spend more time with us than you do by yourself. Why don't you just come back to the community? And she did. Yeah. Um, and we, I have not interviewed, um, the sister yet, so I don't want to use her name, but there is a sister in our community who was in the pro who was in the formation process left or uh, had a different life path and then came back. After a, a pretty like good chunk of time, mm-hmm. so yes, you can. Yeah. What would you say to people who are listening to this, thinking like they have their own kind of ideas of what nun life? And I'm using <laughs> quotations again. I frequently, when I'm not officially communicating for the adorers, I call it nunnery. Um, uh-huh. When when they have their own own ideas of nunnery, mm-hmm. what I mean, what would you say to them about what it's like to be a sister? You know, let I, I think um, they would they might find it really hard to find much difference between their life and our life. Um, if there's anything, it's that um, the times that I might choose to eat my meals are not my choices. It's the choice of the community. So, um, you know, somebody with a big family would have the same issue. Yeah. But, you know, if I were, if I were, I'll use myself. If I were a single person at this point in my life, when I ate would probably be different than when I do now, because this is, this is the style. Right. Um, There would be gatherings that I would go to um, that, that as a lay person, I would say, well, I don't think I'm in the mood to do that this weekend. So, but it has the same dynamic as, as family, mm-hmm. always the same dynamic as family. Yeah. I wouldn't blow off my family reunion. I wouldn't blow off a community gathering. I agree. I think it is so just incredibly normal. It is normal. And I would say that the 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 founding piece of it for us as individuals is faithfulness. Yeah. We're being faithful to our community. Men and women around the world are being faithful to their relationships and to their families. Yeah. It's the same dynamic. Yeah. You don't. It's just blood. Like you're just living every day. Yeah, like, exactly. Um, and I think, you know, what's also funny to see is like, I say this uh, to y'all a lot, but there's uh, varied women here. There's a lot of different uh-huh. women from a lot of different backgrounds that do a lot of different things. And there's one thing you all have in common, <laughs> and it is your incredible stubbornness. It's just normal. Like, it's just a normal office. People, you know, think I work in a monastery <laughs> in the dark. Um, it's just a normal office. It's yes. a normal life, and it's an education every day for me. So I'm excited that we get to educate yes. some people through the practice. Well, and you're educating us, too. <laughs> Only on technology. <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> on many things. Um, so there's one question we ask everyone that comes on the podcast. Okay. Uh, obviously, the podcast is called Habits. What is your best habit? 
My best habit is probably reading. Mm. I love to read. I love to read a lot of different kinds of things. What are you reading right now? Uh, I'm reading about a group of women who were friends, a novel, a group of friend, people who were friends in college and have come back to the lake house for their summer vacation. Mm-hmm. I'm reading uh, about vulnerability. <gasps> from the, who? From Breen. Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Yes. We're going to link her because I think she's Yeah, that's it. she's very good. Um, I'll actually get the titles for everyone and link them if you're yes. interested in, in reading something. I can't even think what else I have. I, I'm getting ready to go to on retreat next week. Mm-hmm. And so I have this um, stack that's forming and... Um, yeah. I keep pulling things off the shelf thinking, oh, I've been wanting to read this. Now, I'll probably get to retreat and just stack them up and look at them longingly. Yeah. But um, I just have a lot of different kinds of things I like to read. Yep. And what is your worst habit? Diet Coke. Yeah. You do. It's my cam. It's my the only way I get caffeine. So Mm -hmm. I have some in the morning. Uh, I've often said I think I like the spritz in the water as much as the caffeine. So, yeah. You know, it's the sort of thing, but yeah. yes, I'm definitely a yeah. diet Coke freak. I'm a recovering. You, so. Yes, you understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we didn't talk a lot about your life. Uh, have no fear. We're bringing you back. Oh, all right. Um, but thank you so much for kicking off the podcast. Thank you so much for answering the questions, which I'm sure you get all the time. Um, and I'm excited for this season and for you to get to hear all the stories and, and for everyone else to get to hear them as well. So thanks for coming on. Well, we, we really appreciate people asking us questions. Because yes, you do. we don't know what people are interested in, and it's hard for us to just say, well, I'm sure they want to know this. So the questions are wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. For show notes and behind the scenes, check out our website, adorers.org. Habits is brought to you by the Adorers of the Blood of Christ U.S. region. Co-produced by Cheryl Wittenauer, Lori Benj, and Molly McKinstry. Edited by Molly McKinstry. Thanks. We'll see you all next week.